0: I'm Heba Elias and
1: I'm Siobhan Drew
0: and And welcome welcome to to Momentum, a Race Forward podcast where we explore how racial justice work is showing up everywhere around us. Season finale okay cool
1: first of all this is the beginning of the podcast and our producer said that we always start the podcast the same way excuse me so I guess that means that Hiba can't say Siobhan and I can't say Hiba, and then we can't do that so I'm gonna start the podcast today and I'm gonna start by saying that I'm tired but that I'm also excited because we're on that season finale energy right now like. I can't say I'm tired of podcasting. It's actually a thrill to be able to talk with Hibba and all these guests. Um, I'm more so excited that we've gotten this far. Hibba, welcome to the season finale.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you for the warm welcome. Love our banter portion.
1: Double check. Let's double check the chat to make sure that, you know, our producer has not. Um, okay, we good. We're good. We good, girl.
0: Now can I be like, girl, what's going on?
1: <laughs> Same shit.
0: What's going on, Siobhan? Um, a lot is going on. But one of the highlights from this week for me is one, we are now recording episode 10, the season finale. And um another update that really made my week was North Carolina. Like shout outs to North Carolina, shout outs to Asheville. Some major, major news dropped on Tuesday. Are you ready for the news, Siobhan? Yes. So Asheville, North Carolina approved investment based reparations for black residents, girl. Oh, my God. How major is this? I'm speechless right now. Wait. It's major. It's major news. It's such a big move within the movement. Just depicts that all the work that we've been putting in over the years. It means something. Right. And I just wanted to share this news as a sign of hope. The city council voted on a resolution that formally apologized to its black residents for the city's role in slavery, which is, you know, hello, uh, discriminatory housing practices and other race- racist policies during its history. But the resolution, it doesn't mandate direct payments, but calls on the city to create Community Reparations Commission. So the commission will make investments in areas where black residents face disparities, which is a win, Right. Um North Carolina has a steep history of all the things that I've forementioned. So, um I'm really happy. This this news really made my day and I'm hoping many other cities follow suit, especially in the South. Slavery, economic disparities, all the things that we we talk about on a daily basis, all the things that we work towards dismantling um here at Race Forward. And yeah, I wanted to share that news with you and get that off my chest cuz I'm excited. Um yeah. So that's that's the update that I got that made my week.
1: Wow. Well, congrats to everyone. Congrats to everyone in Asheville, everyone who worked with the local government there. That's a step forward. And that's really exciting.
0: I want to give a personal shout out to one of our colleagues, Siobhan, um, Shauna Davey, who has been an integral part in our government alliance work in North Carolina. And she's worked personally with some of the members that have moved the needle on this big achievement, on this big win. So shout outs to Shauna Davies, shout outs to our gear team that has been knee deep in the paint with government officials trying to get these wins.
1: So awesome. Congrats, Shauna, Anna, Ariana, Government Alliance on Race and Equity team. This is amazing. What else is Poppington?
0: I mean, a lot is Poppington, but I really wanted to get into being that it's our season finale, Siobhan, I wanted to get into some of the reviews from many of our listeners. Oh, some of these were very touching to me as I was reading them. Some of y'all are on our social handles on our Twitter. We have Katie Rose. Um, shout outs to you, Katie. We have Sandrine Hope at Franz Tubama. And then we have Ruby's TG. Shout outs to y'all on Twitter. And then we also have a few on Instagram. You know, Instagram is my favorite social media handle. Siobhan, you know, I'm on there 24-7, even though I shouldn't be.
1: Yeah, because you post your glam shots <laughs> on there.
0: I knew that was coming. Shout outs to Louisa Cassie Cohn. Louisa Cassie Cohn. Shout outs to you on Instagram for showing us love. Here are a few reviews we wanted to read that were left on our Apple podcast page.
1: Sure. So I have just started listening as part of my long overdue self-education. I hear you. Thank you for your honesty and your directness and your grace. I thought that was a nice one.
0: That was beautiful. Thank you. What else you got,
1: Siobhan? Uh, thank you, Hiba and Siobhan. My org is sharing momentum in our list of essential resources for anti-racism learning and action. Good. That's good. We'll try to curse less. <laughs> Here's another one. A personalized podcast about race. Love the various topics, guests, and perspectives. As a white male, I'm looking for a fresh perspective on race and social justice. I've learned a lot so far and appreciate the host's authentic voice and tone. Oh, okay, well, then we won't stop cursing.
0: Right. We'll keep it up. Listen,
1: we're we're tug of war at this point. And another person said that they find the podcast
0: calming and inspirational. That's good in this moment. That's needed in this moment. So thank you. Thank you for that.
1: Thank you, everyone, for the reviews. Um, They're encouraging. We appreciate you.
0: You know, we've been podcasting for about a year now. So I just wanted to know personally, what have you learned about podcasting or being a podcaster throughout the first season? I would say that
1: honestly listen you know I I'm not the engineer and I feel like I've learned a bit about the technology behind how a podcast gets recorded through just going through this process with our producer you know um, you know our co-producers are Hendel and Melissa Frankie and it's been like interesting to see how things how the how the dough gets made to set up your equipment and things like that is interesting you learn a bit more about Um, how audio can work, you know, to have to troubleshoot on your own or with help is also a learning experience. I feel like I'm a, I'm a troubleshooter already coming from a tech kind of a background or a startup background. So I had the troubleshooting spirit for sure, but it's definitely different with audio. So it's been interesting. And then in terms of the first season, like finishing the first season, I've learned that sometimes when you embark upon something, you won't necessarily see the return on it immediately because you know we started this and you and I are two people who are learning and we would love for people to learn along with us. But what if we didn't think it was worth doing? You know what I mean? What if we did not join up with our producer and agree to do this? I feel like we would not be able to meet the moment in the same way as we are. I guess I've learned that it's important to embark upon things that you find to be important, even if you don't see yourself as the big fish in the pond or something like that. Cause I know there are tons of podcasts out here, but we aren't in competition with other podcasts. You know, we are on a learning journey and we are inviting other people to join us. So I'm glad that we started it together. I'm glad that we embarked upon the journey.
0: Yeah, no, I resonate with everything that you've mentioned. I always say that we should all move with intention. Like that's my, my motto. And I feel like from the moment that our producers approached us about this idea, I was game for it, right? Because I've always had an interest in communications, podcasting, but more so just connecting folks on a deeper level. And I feel like this podcast has done exactly that for unity, solidarity, space to heal, space to learn. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that we were able to come together. But yeah, um, I'm in a happy space. So thank you. That's another thank you to you. I wanna gear us up for our special guest that's coming on to speak with us, Sibyl Rahman. Stay tuned, y'all. Kay Sabil
1: Rahman is the president of Demos, a dynamic think and do tank that powers the movement for a just, inclusive, multiracial democracy. Through cutting edge policy research, inspiring litigation and deep relationships with grassroots organizations, Demos champions solutions that will create a democracy, an economy that is rooted in racial equity. Sabeel is also an associate professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, go Brooklyn, where he teaches constitutional law, administrative law, and courses on law and inequality. He's the author of Democracy Against Domination, published by Oxford University Press in 2017, which won the Dahl Prize for scholarship on the subject of democracy. His new book, Civic Power, looks at how to build a more inclusive and empowered bottom-up democracy. A Muslim American and the child of Bangladeshi immigrants, Rahman grew up in New York. He earned his law degree and doctorate at Harvard University and his master's degrees at the University of Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. He serves on the boards of the New Press, United to Protect Democracy, as well as the Narrative Initiative. Welcome, Sibyl. Thanks so much for having me, Siobhan and Hibba. And go Brooklyn, indeed. Absolutely.
0: Yes. (laughs) Go Brooklyn. Yes. So. So bill I have I've framed up questions for you but my first question that I'm really eager to know and Siobhan called me very nosy um for asking this but what does the K in your name stand for it's
1: a it's a fun question I told her it might stand for for keep your nose out of my business <laughs>
2: <laughs> well the answer is um uh, I mean it's interesting and more mundane than that it's I'm happy to talk about it so my uh, my whole first name is a mouthful. It's actually Kazi Sabil. and the reason I shorten it by K is because my dad is also Kazi something. My dad is Kazi Abzalur Rahman, and the Kazi is actually sort of passed down through, on my dad's side of the family. So um, my uncles are all Kazi something. A lot of my cousins are. My grandfather was, and Kazi is actually uh, traces all the way back to the honorific meaning judge in the Mughal in Mughal area Bengal. And so um, at some point, a long time ago, I'm not even exactly sure when, someone on my father's side was uh, a, a magistrate judge or some kind of judge uh, in the Mughal uh, era, in the Mughal Empire. And um, and that just got passed down. It's, it's pretty common, though, I should also say, like, there are a lot of khazis, uh in Bangladesh and in, uh, in South Asia. Uh, but, you know, it's I, I love that that's part of my name. And it also gets really confusing for folks when we're filling out paperwork about which Kazi they're talking to. So that's why I shorten it.
0: That makes sense. So it's more so a cultural practice versus anything else. So that's a beautiful thing, though. And I can definitely understand why you shortened it. Yeah, I can definitely understand why you shortened it. It may cause some confusion.
2: No, I love it.
0: Um, I can I can see it now in high school, you getting mail, your father getting mail at the same house. And it's like, OK, well, who does it go to? Are we
1: talking to your father <laughs>
0: right now? Yeah, <laughs>
2: right. This is an elaborate impersonation scheme. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I just had to know. I'm like, I'm going to ask this. Um, but yeah, I have a few other questions, too. I recognize that you are a, a Bengali Muslim man in the U.S. I, too, am a Sudani Muslim woman. So we share some practices there. Before we get into like the deep talk, I wanted to ask, like, what was it like for you being a first generation born Bengali Muslim man? What experiences did you have to live through and what has moved you to do this work?
2: Yeah, I love that question, and and it's uh, great to just hear about your story as well, Hiba. And you know, so it's a it's a it's there are a lot of different pieces here, and it's always something that I, I think I spend I think a lot about, right? Kind of what uh, what brought my parents to this country, and what brought me to this work, and also what it means to do this work as a Muslim American, uh, Bangladeshi American. Uh, as a person of color and also as a non-black person of color in this moment in particular. So we can kind of un- unpack all of that, I hope. Um, so, you know, I kind of grew up all over, right? I was, uh, so I mean, one thing at the right, at the beginning is I, I am sort of the anchor baby in our family. Like I, I think a lot of folks might relate to, to that experience. I was born here really by luck that my parents were working here uh, at the time where I was born. I have older two older sisters who are not born in the U.S., um, but who, you know, have lived here for a long time. Uh, and my dad used to work for the UN. He's retired now, but he spent his whole career first uh, as part of the Bangladeshi civil service. Uh, you know, he, my parents are both part of the revolutionary generation in Bangladesh, right? Bangladesh becomes independent in 1972, uh, fighting an independence war against uh, what was then uh, East and West Pakistan. Uh, and sort of, it's like, it was kind of the second wave of, uh, of partition, really, after uh, the British left in 47. Uh, and so he was part of the The foreign service for a brand new country, you know, kind of a young uh, idealist in his twenties, and uh, was posted all over the world. Eventually, made his way to New York, uh, and that's when I was born. Uh, but then we moved away. We actually moved to Thailand uh, not long after I was born, and so from ages of four to thirteen, I actually grew up in Bangkok, Thailand, and that was a really important growth, uh, kind of learning experience or kind of childhood experience for me because I kind of came into all of this stuff really as a child of the global South, right? We kind of grew up hearing from my parents and also seeing in Bangladesh and in Bangkok and sort of South and Southeast Asia, uh, all the, the struggles for, to make the ideals of democracy and equality real. You know, my parents would, would grow up listening to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and JFK on Voice of America radio, right, as they were navigating the freedom struggles in Bangladesh in the 70s. And so I was kind of just steeped in all of these uh, transnational debates. Uh, and, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know what you're steeped in. You just think what you're hearing is normal, right? And, uh, but those were the kinds of conversations we, were, we would be having in our household. So then fast forward, uh, we moved back to New York uh, in the 90s and you know, have been there ever since. So I very much also think of myself as a New Yorker. Uh, and then I was a freshman in college. It was the week before college classes started that 9-11 happened. And I have this very sharp memory of... Uh, you know, of course, 9-11 was such a defining moment for the country, but particularly for Muslim Americans, uh, you know, it kind of dramatically reshaped our relationship, I think, to to politics and to the government uh, and just to these questions about democracy and power and surveillance and, and race. Uh, but I remember at the time, you know, the, the dominant uh, feeling uh, for me, but for a lot of uh, other Muslim Americans that I was around really being one of fear. Right. And and one that, well, you know, should we join the protests against uh, against the, the Iraq war, for example, or not? Because we because because we know that we're we're being watched and we know that we have family members who, you know, have visa applications pending or, you know, we just, there's just a lot of fear. And that fear bred silence. And and looking back on that, I remember really struggling with that and thinking, well, what, like that felt wrong. And it also like felt Like I didn't know what else to do at the time. Right. And um, and then you fast forward again to the Trump election uh, and the incredible moment of uh, multiracial solidarity around the travel ban, the Muslim ban in those first uh, scary days, weeks of January. Uh, And, you know, I think so much of my own thinking about this work has been about, you know, both understanding the deep interconnections between race, economic inequality, uh, anti-democracy and authoritarianism, not just in this country, but in in the world. Uh, But then also um, this kind of personal interrogation of like, what does it really mean to show up for these ideas? And, um, you know, I became a a lawyer and a law professor in part so that I could write more about this stuff, uh, engage in activism and policy work around this stuff. Uh, But when the shift to Demos for me was really also about Uh, That Even that felt like it was not enough in this moment, that I was just kind of uh, really hungry uh, and anxious for a way to do more uh, at a time where so much felt that it was on the line in the Trump era. And I was really lucky and uh, blessed to have this opportunity to work with this incredible team and organization and all our partners, you know, at Race Forward and elsewhere. uh, We're just really lucky to be a part of this work together.
0: Wow. That was, one, amazing. So thank you for sharing that. A lot of fields that I'm processing on my yeah, end. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot back <laughs> yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I sit with other fields in regards to being a first generation born. I sit with pressure um, in making sure that I succeed in this country because of the sacrifices that my parents put forth, um, and that we give back to our homeland, right? In the same sense of giving back to the land that we're currently on right now. So it's like a, a dual responsibility, not only for our people here, but our people back home as well. So it doubles the pressure, but also is it's, it's well worth the fight, right? It's well worth getting up in the morning and making sure that you're living with intention.
2: Right away, just very quickly to double click on that, Hib, I'm so grateful for you sharing that. And I do think that um, that sense of uh, intentionality and, uh, and service to family, to um, uh, kind of homeland, uh, to uh, both. Kind of adopted and uh, uh and sort of uh homeland by birth right um I think all of that is is so real and and you know just to add, I think you know one of the things that I know I spend a lot of time thinking through constantly and I know others do too is um you know how to balance all those things and reconcile them right' Cause you know i spent a lot as you know as 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 a uh, someone who also grew up uh you know in a third in a in the global south not even in in bangladesh right i i for a long time i sort of had this question of well you know should i be doing this work in a global context in sort of a more, you know working on international uh development democracy issues and that's where a lot of my career actually started um and it wasn't until the obama election and the financial crisis sort of in '08 that I really kind of fully committed to doing this work here in the U S because it just sent, um, cause I always just had this, uh, this back and forth of like, well, what's the right place for me to engage in? Um, you know, so that's one, that's one tension. And then the other thing is this idea of service that you mentioned. I mean, I do think there's, uh, we talk about how urgent this work is, but it is also a privilege, right. To be able to do it. Um, you know, because they're, they so there, uh, to be able to do it in the sense that, you know, we're able to uh, kind of keep food on the table for our families, uh, you know, those of us who have caregiving responsibilities or, or know one day we are, we are likely to have caregiving responsibilities for, um, you know, our parents or siblings or children. Um, you know, the, the fact that you can devote your professional time to doing the, the work of, of the larger sort of social justice movement. Uh, is is itself just a real a real privilege and so I, I also spend a lot of time thinking about that right making good making good on that privilege in the time that we have uh, to do this work.
0: I want to kind of shift gears a bit into our current state you know we're living in a time of heavy anti-blackness and the devaluing of black lives in this country has been taking place for many many years. Uh, We've learned it briefly in our history books, but it's becoming more evident and clear that the livelihood of Black lives in this country amounts to little to nothing, right? And it's forcing us to address the nation's origin, but also dismantle the system of racial violence, economic disparities, and all these other things that we fight on a day-to-day basis. So my question to you is, like, what direction can you give folks that are fighting the good fight um, in this moment? And what is Demos doing to support? People on the ground and people that are, are are pushing this pushing this movement.
2: Yeah, there's there's um, uh, a lot to talk about there, and I'm, I really appreciate the uh, this focus. You know, I think just as you said, uh, first thing, just to really ground us, as you said, in, in the moment we're in. I think um, this is this is a moment that is casting into sharp relief what black communities and black and brown communities more broadly, you know, have known for a long time. As you as you put it, right, that we have a country. Uh, an economic system, a political system that is uh, premised on racial hierarchy and premised on anti-blackness in particular, right? And we're seeing that just uh, revealed very, very sharply in this uh, the kind of ongoing crisis of anti-black police violence, uh, state-sponsored violence, but also the structural violence of our economy, right? So, what you know, how do we even get to a point where we have an economy that is premised on? Uh, Black and brown workers literally putting their lives at risk uh, because they have no choice in order to keep food on the table and to pay the rent, and that was actually true even before there was a global pandemic. Right? It's just it's just become even more uh, accentuated and dangerous. Uh, but the state, but that risk, that precariousness, was already in place. And so, uh, uh, you know, these are kind of pretty deep structures that we're up against. I think to your question about what what do we do in this moment. You know, I think it, there are a couple things that are front and, front and center for me. Uh, one is uh, this is a moment to really think about uh, what solidarity means and what it uh, what it will require of all of us to kind of throw down with the movement for Black Lives, with the the, the fight for racial equity, and especially for those of us who are uh, even if we're, if we're people of color, but those of us who are non Black people of color, uh, white communities, right. Um, Everybody has to sort of interrogate their own position and role and understand that actually uh, our collective liberation requires us to focus on the deep problems of anti black violence and anti black uh, structures and to work together in support of black organizations, black communities. Uh, who are doing the work of dismantling those structures. So the, so the first thing is just to even commit to this work in this moment, and that that is actually the work of building a truly inclusive democracy uh, and, a, and a, uh, an economy that liberates all of us. That's number one. Number two is then concretely, what does that mean? I think this is where um, we are having really important conversations for the first time in a long time uh, in this country about what specific structural changes need to happen. So everything from uh, police abolition to uh, a radical reinvestment in black and brown communities, you know, through uh, proposals like the Movement for Black Lives Breathe Act, which was released the other week, uh, or a Green New Deal, right? We're having, we have these big ideas about what it would take to dismantle those deep systems of racial inequity, but then to also create systems of inclusion, of liberation, of human flourishing. And that's, Long overdue, and and actually, I think the optimist in me is really excited that we are putting those big ideas on the table now in a big way. So, so that's about policy—the policies we need to we need to move forward. And then the third thing is is really I think about power, like building the power to make those policies real, and that's about people power on the streets, but it's also about political power, right? We need we need more elected officials, more uh, people in government who come from Black and Brown communities who are responding to movement demands and who can sort of uh, uh, put these ideas into legislation, into law, uh, and actually kind of use the powers of the state to to make in- that type of inclusion and equity real. And so then um, that brings it all to Demos. You know, Demos, we're, uh, we think of ourselves as a, as a think tank of the movement. And for us, what that means is, you know, we have... We're doing policy research. We are doing great litigation on voting rights and uh, issues of voter suppression. Uh, we're working with grassroots partners to drive uh, policy campaigns. But all of that is to in support of the kind of uh, movement demands that we're seeing in this moment. So we're partnering with groups in uh, key states around issues of voter suppression uh, around some of these debates around invest divest, for example um, we 're uh, trying to move some of the national policy conversations to take these ideas more seriously and and to kind of help move them across the finish line and everything from uh, climate equity to uh, debt cancellation to voting rights and so um, there's a lot that's going on uh, in the organization, but even even that's sort of a small piece of the larger puzzle, uh, which is why we're so grateful for uh, our partners as we're doing this work together.
0: Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Demos has played an integral part within the movement. So much gratitude to the organization, much gratitude to, for your direction and your leadership. And I'm um, leading the organization, but also much appreciation to making sure that that's a value and making sure that that's a practice of, of Demos is to work alongside organizations, grassroots organizations on the grounds that are fighting this fight. Not a lot of organizations get recognition for the work that they do. And a lot of major national organizations take credit for the work that is being done on the grounds So that's one thing that I can highlight from Demos and you guys do it phenomenally is crediting the organizations that are on the ground doing the work. It's a great value to have. And I highly encourage many uh, national organizations to follow suit. And I also wanted to pass the mic to Siobhan. Um, I feel like Siobhan, you've been listening in. So I'm going to stop talking (laughs) and I'm going to let you lead our conversation.
1: Well, sure. I mean, I was, yeah, I was listening enwrapped, you know, so no worries at all. I, I was taking notes and everything. Um, I do have some questions about, I guess, being an author. Can you tell us, like, give us an overview, Sabiel, of the two books that I mentioned in your bio that you wrote?
2: Yeah, sure. And um happy to do that. And it's also uh, just thinking about a piece you mentioned, uh, Hibba, that the importance of sort of uh, connecting all of our work to the folks who are moving this on the ground and doing the, the, the kind of door to door, uh, organizing and, and in community, especially in black and brown communities, you know, that's, uh, that doesn't just happen. That's a, that's an ongoing process. And it's also an ongoing learning process. And so one thing I'll say that, you know, I, I'll talk about these two books, but also one of the things that I learned a lot in the course of, uh, doing this work as an academic, and I'm learning every day as I'm in the work now at Demos is that, uh, there is a different way of thinking about new ideas when you're doing it in partnership with folks who are leading the work on the ground. And it's not, it's sort of different from the traditional, like, you know, go into the library, read a lot of stuff and then write a lot of stuff. You know, I, 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 I'm an academic by training. So I of course love doing that kind of work. Um, But, you know, part of my own journey to this work was sort of getting more and more frustrated with that traditional way of uh, mode of just reading and writing and thinking and wanting to be, thinking with folks who are doing this work on the ground. Um, yes. And so. Talk about uh, that and,
1: tension. Yeah. You've, so you've gone to some institutions that are pretty totally. major, but also have their own white supremacy type of totally. legacy. Totally. So what, talk about that.
2: Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, just to, to use the the books as an example, right? Like um, each of the books for me are, are kind of uh, marker points on it, on my own journey. You know, the, the first book, Democracy Against Domination, came out of my Uh, uh, my dissertation work. And, you know, that was really a book where I was, I'm starting to think through, uh, you know, this idea of that, Oh, you know, even when we talk about uh, economic policy, why does economic policy conversations feel so uh, unrooted from the kind of deep forms of inequality and suffering and, uh, and just uh, extraction, right. That seems to dominate our economy. And I was really frustrated at the time with the Obama administration's response to the financial crisis, where it really felt like, um, kind of like, yes, it was, there was uh, better policies than we had had before, but it still felt very top down technocratic, you know, the same, uh, kind of policy wonks trying to tinker around the edges and make some good policy. Sure. But leaving a lot of the structural inequities that the 2008 financial crisis revealed in place. And what was that about? Like, why, 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 would the most uh, progressive president, perhaps of our lifetime, uh, with big majorities in Congress, still fall so short in um, in the response to what was then the worst economic crisis you know since the Great Depression? And the, where I came down in that book is that really it's a problem of power and ideology that you can't you can't get the kind of structural transformative change you need unless you first kind of uh, are willing to take head on those deep uh, structures of race and economic power, which requires an ideological shift, right? That's a, that's a um, it's sort of the, the long legacy of the Reagan years that, that even in the Obama era, you had a lot of Democrats who still thought that the right thing to do was to keep uh, uh, Wall Street and finance afloat, and, and that that was just as important, if not more important than uh, dealing with, say, the, the home ownership crisis in Black America. Um, and so that's an ideological problem. Uh, but then it's also a power problem because you needed a different kind of people power and then a different type of uh, political power to force those more structural issues onto the table. And so that was the, the first book. It was just kind of grappling with the failure of kind of uh, mainstream liberal uh, policymaking. Which then led, like, eventually led me to a whole lot of amazing relationships and partnerships with grassroots groups that I got to know uh, as an academic, which led to the second book, Civic Power, where that is really trying to lift up examples of power building that uh, folks on the ground are doing as a different way forward for our democracy, right? That what does it look like if we actually um, could scale up the experiments in uh, organizing? People power building uh, in new forms of participatory democracy that uh, is being tried out at the local level under pressure from movement groups that kind of pull, bring those into the story and then think about what would it look like if we scaled those up to the national level. Uh, I wrote most of that before I came to demos uh, and then but demos was sort of like a natural like next step in in my own process right because uh, if we 're serious about d- democracy and if we're serious that democracy actually means that the people most affected. Should be the ones who are making the decisions. So that you know, it's a simple idea, but it's a pretty radical one. Um, that actually means that you like you have to do the work in a different way. It means that we have to be thinking through with Black and Brown communities and leaders and workers on the ground. You know, who, what are the real problems? What might more transformative, bold solutions look like? And then find ways to elevate those, credential those, and move them forward. Um, So that's just a little bit of kind of my my own uh, intellectual journey into this work. I mean, I will say that just about the kind of elite institutions piece, um, it's a really, really interesting question because I, uh, having gone through some of these kind of uh, very elite credentialing uh, institutions, that kind of gave me a lot of room to maneuver, right? Like I was able to do this kind of work often on the side uh, because I had, gone to Harvard because I became a law professor, right? Because I sort of had the credential of uh, going to Oxford or what, what have you. Um, but it, it's also been interesting to see um, how much those institutions are being pressured from within uh, by students, right? Like I have, before I came to Demos, I was, a, I was teaching and um, often I was one of the few uh, professors of color Uh, There's one semester where I went back to Harvard Law School to teach um, constitutional law for a semester, and I was the only uh, person of color teaching constitutional law that whole year. And and so I had a lot of students who were just like super hungry to do more movement-facing work, to think about how they can uh, use their education and their uh, platforms to... Uh, do more transformative work. And so that was, uh, I think, really interesting and exciting to also just see how those institutions are being challenged from within.
1: Wow. Well, you took me right into my next question. In terms of teaching constitutional law, you know, that's that's not something that I grew up studying. Um, I feel like sometimes if you're kind of trying to figure out how to survive or, you know, how to, how to make things work um, in America, that Some of us, you know, our families didn't focus on studying the Constitution, knowing your rights. And I feel like the Constitution is this oft-referred-to document, but not necessarily as widely understood of a document. When you're coming up and, and you're hearing things like, Okay, slavery ended at this such and such a date, but they leave out, you know, Juneteenth, and you don't learn about that until decades later as an adult. Or when you hear people say that slavery ended, but then as an adult, you hear people talk about, well, slavery is legal. And you see photos of people working in the fields in prisons down south or fighting fires in California, or they're making hand sanitizer that Governor Cuomo is showing us for the pandemic. These are the, the headlines that I'm reading, and it makes me wonder... Can you talk about constitutional law and some of maybe the myths or mis- misunderstandings that are perpetuated? Like, are there top two, top three? Are, are what I mentioned any of them? All these
2: questions are so juicy. Uh, we need hours on each of these. I love that, Siobhan. So no, no, there's a short version. Um So, no, I mean, I think this, I I love this because there's a couple things that come right to mind. I mean, the first thing is, I think a lot of times the constitution or these sort of like founding mythologies about American democracy are used to, often used to legitimize existing racial and economic hierarchies that actually kind of um, make the ideals feel like a lie, right? So we say, oh, we have a, we live in a democracy. Well, we don't actually, right? Because for... Since the beginning of the country, the reality is black and brown folks have been consistently squeezed out of political power, have consistently faced voter suppression have consistently been subject to an economy that depends on extracted wealth from black and brown workers, black and brown bodies, black and brown communities and You mentioned a couple of examples, like with prison labor. It's also true even just in the sort of uh, uh, kind of nominally perfectly legal systems that we have for just ordinary precarious work, right? The fact that we have essential workers, say, in an Amazon warehouse who are monitored down to the second if they fall behind on their work, but are not even able to wash their hands on the job, are not even able to have the benefit of paid sick leave or Uh, the kind of healthcare they need, they need to literally survive in a pandemic. That is a hundred percent constitutional and legal labor system that has its own roots in extractive labor of the Jim Crow era, right? And so so all which is to say we have like kind of one I think one way that constitution can often function is to like kind of sweep some of those systems under the rug. But the thing that I find so powerful is that when you look at the counter history of the movements for justice, so often, our movements for justice have have also been trying to reclaim and use the power of constitutional ideas and the power of like the law itself to drive in another direction. So, you know, Frederick Douglass spends a lot of time has a number of these really important speeches that I uh, often use in my con law class, where he's he's trying to make the case for how. How and why we should reimagine the Constitution without removing the provisions that enshrine the legacy of slavery, right, like the three fifths clause and it 's an, a reason why you have moments fights like during reconstruction after the Civil War, you know we passed constitutional amendments to abolish slavery and assure equal protection, but even those amendments were were not enough, right they included loopholes that the country is still exploiting to this day, so i 'm really interested in. Thinking about, you know, if this is another of those big historical moments that we're living in right now, like reconstruction, if this is another uh, reconstruction type moment, how do we think with our movement partners about the kinds of like deep structural changes that we want to enshrine in law and policy? And even in the constitution as like, if we're going to have a document that is supposedly our foundational like expression of our values it should actually express the values we want right so we actually should try to make it so that it's actually defending the right to vote for all communities you know resisting voter suppression that it's um, advancing a vision of uh, racial equity and economic justice which it isn't necessarily right now so i think there's a, there's a lot push pull of the con- kind of constitutional frame that it is both limiting and it's also something that i feel like we are uh, we're having a, we're always having a fight about what it ought to say.
1: I hear that. I think it's great to frame it as an opportunity, like a reconstruction opportunity. I heard someone say that reconstruction is like a cycle in this country. Every time there's something left undone and unaddressed, then we will, you know, maybe we'll be able to get a win and move along for a little while, and then realize that the unaddressed items still must be addressed, and we start all over. So yeah, I like that idea.
2: Yeah. Just to build on that for a quick second, you know, um, I think that that's, that cycle nature you're talking about, Javan, I think is exactly right. And uh, But the reason for the cycle has to do with power, right? It's not automatic. It's what the cycle happens because there's a backlash, right? Because you have, whether it's the, you know, you have like business groups, wealthy elites, white supremacists who will respond to effort, to moves for equity by reasserting, Hierarchy in some in different ways, right? So the first Reconstruction gives is then violently suppressed by the rise of the KKK, etc., which then gives rise to Jim Crow. And if the Civil Rights Movement was sort of a second Reconstruction, the response to that is is got us the modern conservative coalition, right? Nixon and and even Trump is sort of a reflection of this. How big business and opponents of desegregation fuse together in a political project to fight back, right, against a more inclusive alternative. So that that cycle, the reason we're in the cycle is because there are people who benefit from the from an unequal democracy. And that those are the people who are fighting against like over and over again.
0: You know, we're gearing up for elections in November. And we will be building and gearing ourselves up for once again, reconstruction, right? I wanted you to speak more about the reconciliation process for the Trump era, right? Like many of us are scorned. Many of us are hurting. Many of us are actually scared for what the future may hold. Give the audience some insight on what they should be gearing up for and how we can better help one another um, in this time that's coming up.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. And, you know, it's there's so much uh, that Black and brown folks are uh, facing now, you know, November feel, can feel like eons away, but it's coming up real, real soon. And a lot is going to turn on what we do after November. So there are three things in particular that I just would love readers to or listeners to be thinking about. One is that let's say Biden wins in November and uh, and let's say that Trump leaves office peacefully. These are all um, uh, assumptions, but let's say all of that happens the first thing is, I think we have to be really clear that we are not just going to turn the page and sweep under the rug everything that happened over these last few years, right? The, the kind of deeply evil moral culpability that accompanies you know, this uh, deliberate avoidance of solving the pandemic, right? Letting it rip through black and brown communities, devastating our communities, letting the economy collapse uh, and leaving working folks to just fend for themselves. And that's not to mention Things like family separation at the border, uh, the kind of systematic targeted violence on immigrant communities by ICE, like there's so much moral harm that's been done over these last few years. I think as a country, we need to we need to have a way to publicly, explicitly grapple with that and narrate what actually happened as a way to move forward in a way that is actually committed to deep equity, right? I think we, we often have a, a problem of, with that kind of honest moral reckoning in this country. And I think uh, projects like the 1619 project or like the kind of move on, on Confederate monuments, like we're, we're actually having that conversation led by movement voices in a powerful way. And I would like to see that continue. So that's all number one. Uh, number two is we got to take the opportunity to make some big policy changes. And this is this goes to What we were talking about, about structural reform and movement visions for equity, Uh, you know, I think January is going to be, if there's a new administration, a key moment to put our foot on the gas and really pressure new elected officials, whether it's in D.C. or in the States, to follow through, right, to actually try to push on abolition to try to push on a green new deal uh, to try to rebuild our economy in a way that that actually does it right this time not just trying to go back to the good old days of you know 2010 which were not very good to begin with and then the last thing is again going back to power you know i think the kind of people power that we've seen these last few months, you know, Movement for Black Lives, the new forms of worker organizing, climate justice movement, to name a few, is incredible. And uh, there's so much work that goes into that. I would love for folks, especially for folks who, you know, have resources, right? funders, donors, people who are in positions of privilege to take up that moment in January, if we're lucky to be there, to put even more resources into movement building and power building, right? Because that actually is a time to, again, double down. A lot of times people pull away, right? They think, oh, we won the election, we're good. But actually, no, that's when we want to go even deeper to make sure that the, the win, the electoral win actually produces real change for communities.
0: Sabiel, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts I feel like now in this moment there are a lot of folks that don't know which direction to go into and I feel like the guidelines and the steps that you just um, are a start for folks right so much appreciation much gratitude to you we hope that we can have you back on the show <laughs> uh, I feel like our time today just wasn't enough but we it's been a pleasure talking with you today and we hope to have you back soon
2: Thanks so much, uh, Hiba and Siobhan. It's been a really fun conversation, and I'm so grateful for the work that y'all are doing too and driving these ideas forward. It takes everybody to be a part of it, and I'm just uh, glad that we can be in this together. So thanks to all of you.
1: Sabeel, can you share with us your social media handles in case folks want to follow your work?
2: Yeah, totally. So I'm uh, at KSabeelRahman on Twitter. Uh, now y'all know where the K is. And you can just follow me through Demos, demos.org. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank
0: you, Hiba. Woo, Siobhan, we just wrapped our season finale. How do you feel?
1: I feel great. Um, I feel real corny because I'm smiling from ear to ear and um, (laughs) I just feel good, girl. Like, I feel like that conversation was very rich and that there's so much more we could have talked about. So as a season finale, I love that we we created a cliffhanger. It's like, yo, we got to have Sabio Rahman back.
0: Yeah, I'm just still I'm on a high right now. I can't believe that we have concluded our season. So I'm in a good space. Good. So Siobhan Facing Race is taking a new direction. I won't announce it now, but we'll be releasing a a bonus episode with all the details very soon. So I'll be sharing with you some key information about Facing Race. Stay tuned.
1: Well, I look forward to hearing more about what's going to happen with Facing Race. And in the meantime, y'all, please rate and subscribe to Momentum. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Google Play. And now we're on Pandora. So tell a friend about us you know subscribe make sure you don't miss anything especially we want you to catch the bonus episode that talks about Facing Race
0: Siobhan I was trying to express my love to you early in the episode but our producer just shut us down but now he wants us to share the love again
1: girl are now do you even feel like doing it anymore <laughs> now you're Listen, like you know you know, know, you know that I, I love you.
0: you you know that I love you you know that I appreciate you it's been a experience adore you love you crying
1: I'm not crying girl I'm excited for the finale to close and so hold my hand put your mask on and let's just walk off into the sunset for now together
0: we'll be back y'all that's a wrap woo